Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of April 16th, 2018. On this week's show, Daryl Morey, the general manager of the NBA's best team, the Houston Rockets, will join us to talk about his new basketball musical, Small Ball. ESPN's Bill Barnwell will also be here to explain why NFL teams are so bad at evaluating quarterbacks. And Mike Schur, the creator of Parks and Rec and The Good Place, will explain his infatuation with Dan Levitard the host of a sports radio show that is only very occasionally about sports. Joining me here at the Slate office in Washington, D.C., mere blocks away from three other offices that used to be Slate's Washington, D.C. office, it's Stefan Fatsis, author of a Twitter thread that inspired the OED to add the word slimeball to the dictionary. Hello, Stefan. Well, they're working on it. They claim they were working on it before... Trump used slime ball in a tweet. And then well, what would I you expect them up. to say? Well, you know, I mean, it's in their 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 online free dictionary. Yeah, that doesn't count. No, doesn't count. Congratulations for inspiring the OED to add slime ball to the dictionary. Thanks, I'm, Josh. I'm sticking to it. Shocking that it wasn't in there already. I'm going to read a little. Uh, it's very shocking. I'm going to read a little intro to our Daryl Morey conversation in a second. I just want to say before uh, we get into it that you, we had eight uh, first-round NBA playoff games this weekend. We'll have ample time to discuss uh, the, you know, LeBron's impending departure from Cleveland, the the Pacers sweep. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We want to let the playoffs play out mm-hmm. a little bit more before we get too deep. So, with that being said, on Sunday night in Houston, the top-seeded Rockets held off the Minnesota Timberwolves 104 to 101 in game one of their first round Western Conference playoff series with the help of 44 points from the likely NBA MVP, James Harden. Joining us now, a leading candidate for the NBA's executive of the year, Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey. Welcome to the show, Daryl. Hey, Josh, Stefan. Thanks for having me. So I didn't say that you are the likely winner for the NBA's executive of the year because I don't want to disrespect the other top executives in the NBA, but you're having a very, very good year, Daryl. Um, and I'm wondering how you, as somebody who has a very um, analytical mind, how do you consume the playoffs? Because like game one of the series that you watched last night, I wouldn't have anticipated that like Derek Rose was going to be the leading scorer for the Wolves for most of the game. Like everything that happened in that game is, you know, you're not going to anticipate. And as we saw all weekend, like these series got off to unexpected starts. Like, as an executive, do you just kind of sit back and watch and, you know, enjoy or not enjoy? Or do you like look for trends and patterns in the games? The main thing we're trying to do is always, uh, always look for what's, uh, you know, what are things that are going to repeat and that we can, uh, have an influence on and what things are just random that, uh, you know, can mislead your decision-making. So, 
Yeah, I think both coaches and everyone in the organization and appreciate the kind words on our season. But as you know, like any of those uh, of the year awards are really organization awards. Uh, yeah, we're we're not looking for the one-offs, the things that probably won't happen again, the missed, you know, missed free throws that we're looking for, systematic ways they're guarding us, we're guarding them, that we'll repeat that we can uh, maybe influence to help us going forward. All right. Enough basketball, Daryl. You're you're obviously <laughs> hoping that the Rockets make beautiful music in these playoffs, but here's my terrible segue. We invited you here to talk about actual music, more specifically your role as a producer of a musical that opened in Houston earlier this month. It's called Small Ball. Let's listen to a clip from the song Sex with Giants. Wanna get naked with giants or know what's between four and six? How to bring the parts into compliance I just cannot grasp The mechanics Oh God Do we want to have sex with giants? Sex with giants Sex with giants Sex with giants Sex with giants Alright, to clarify, this is not a musical about NBA groupies these are actual giants, right, Daryl? Maybe you should tell us a little bit about Small Ball um, and what what this musical is about. It's basically, you know, there's a there's an undiscovered country that that was recently discovered that wants to join the world stage, and so to do that, they start an international FIBA basketball team because they think that's the best way to get themselves on the map. So they. They hire they hire Michael Jordan from the United States to come to their island to to help with their team, and then when he gets there, they find out they've to their dismay they've hired not the Michael Jordan, just some other guy named Michael Jordan who's actually a washed up player. And then you also find out that it's the island of Lilliput has been rediscovered, and Michael not Michael Jordan has joined a bunch of six inch tall teammates to try and win basketball games, and so. High jinks and a love story ensue. So that's 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 the that's the elevator pitch, I guess. We've got a lot of follow up questions for you, Daryl. I think the natural place to start is um, with your love of musical theater. Like this is something that's been a passion of yours since you were really young, right? Yeah, very very young. I always I always like thematic music. Uh, I just didn't know it. I, I loved Pink Floyd, The Wall. I loved. Um, meatloaf, bat out of hell to come up with a, a ridiculous Tommy, the who, to date sorry, the who Tommy. And, yeah. yeah, I date myself a little bit. Oh, my, my dad was big into music. Uh, he was not into musicals though. So I, I always loved those kinds of albums. And then, uh, when I was in middle school, we played in the, of course I was in the band. Every, every nerd stereotype applies to me. So I was in the band and, uh, what'd you play? Uh, I played, um, trombone euphonium tuba trumpet all the mouthpiece instruments and uh and so primarily trombone though but basically we played les mis and i thought it was amazing and so from there it just sparked i you know miss saigon came out i, I learned about android weber and then i learned about the real drug of musical theater sondheim and then forevermore i was i was done i was i was hooked on the sondheim heroin so are you like singing musicals in, in the car? Were you, did you, did you go to Broadway and yes. go to six musicals in a weekend? 
How did you feed well, your... Well, so your, I never flew on a... I didn't even fly on a plane until I was 19. No, no, 20, actually. Uh, so I, I did not get to New York. Uh, sort of... I'm from rural Ohio. I was born in Wisconsin. So I was, like, trying to grab cassette tapes and, um, you know, and then CDs by the end uh, of musicals wherever I could find them at the... Uh, you know, at the uh, the local uh, music store, which no one listening under the age of 30 will know what I'm talking about, but there used to be these places where you would buy cassette tapes in, in, in malls. The Summit Mall in, in uh, near Akron, Ohio was my mall. So the genesis of this particular project was that you were doing an online Q&A when you were traveling around Europe, and you mentioned in that Q&A that uh, you were into musicals, and then this answer got uh, on the Rockets message board, clutchfans.net. It's like the greatest moment in the history of online uh, team-affiliated message boards, the birth of the uh, musical Small Ball. Um, And so what was the process from this being just like an idea that was like circulating among Rockets fans on the internet that like our general manager loves musicals to this actually becoming a show that's on stage in Houston. Right and I now. just, I just want to interrupt and say that the artistic director of a theater in Houston was one of the, the regulars on this message board and saw your response. I didn't think there was really any overlap between, uh, you know, basketball and musical theater. And I think that's still largely true to be frank, <laughs> but I did find through this Q and a, there's a theater catastrophic theater where we we've done this play that the whole place is full of rockets fans. It's amazing. I mean, to the extent that when the rockets were in the finals, they've been around for 25 years when the rockets were in the finals in 95, I believe they, they held up their, their, the second half of their show for the end of the Rockets game and the whole crowd watched the game. They had a play where they made the ultimate evil person, uh, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, and the Utah Jazz. Uh, so, I mean, it just gives you a sense. These guys are passionate fans. So I, I had an immediate connection. Tell us a little more about the plot. The Lilliputians don't use the number five. So that's a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how do they play? Yeah, no, I, T- tell us the tell us what happens in in small ball. Without giving away too much because so, we're expecting it to come to other cities soon. Yeah, I think well we're yeah, we're definitely planning on another run in another city. Yeah. I don't know if where which one. We have a general plan, but I don't want to say it cuz then it might you know, if we don't go there, people wonder why, but uh, I think it's going to come to another major city next next year, but you ask how does it how does it work? Well, that's a big part of the show. Uh, that part I probably can't reveal. I can just tell you that it works. Your passion for musical theater. You're also really into table tennis. Um, it leads me to wonder if um, you have an appreciation for players when you're looking for um, you know folks for the Rockets who have interests outside the sport because like. There's all this conversation around like Josh Rosen we're going to get to in a minute in another segment around mm-hmm. does he really love football like does he care about other stuff too much like do you based on the fact that like during the playoffs you're like talking about musical theater do you have a, more of an appreciation for the fact that people can have lives and interests outside of the sport that they're playing Yeah absolutely I think uh mostly I mean I 
with my job, I really only care about wins. So I, I just not to disappoint you with my answer, but I don't, I don't care much that they have outside interest. But what I would say is that I have found that players that are more well-rounded actually are better players. Does that, that make sense at all? Yeah, so, right. so if you found, if you think, found that think, the players with outside interests were worse players, you would say you shouldn't have outside interests. <laughs> that, that's correct. I think Coach Popovich has addressed this a bunch of times, that he's found that players with outside interests and understand more of the world, he thinks they're better on the floor, and it's pretty hard to argue with Coach Popovich given – you know, he has the best record in the league since he's been here. We're we're second best, but they've got us by a good margin, sadly, and a few rings, bunch of rings. Have uh, any of the players been to the musical yet? Yeah, you know, it was great. I didn't want to invite anyone from the Rockets org because I didn't want that dynamic of like, oh, the boss is doing this go see it. Ter- terrible thing and I got to go. Uh, but I was I was tickled. Yeah, three, uh, four of the players ended up coming uh, when they heard about it. Um, uh, Chris Paul, Trevor, PJ, and Ryan, and uh, all, all seemed to enjoy it, but you'd have to ask them. So. When they said that they enjoyed it, what was the tone of their voice? Was it like, that was really good? Or was it like, <laughs> that was amazing? <laughs> um, uh, I think a little closer to the first. I'm not <laughs> sure. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, you want you want to hear what you want to hear sometimes. So I, I, I think, I think, I mean, a lot of the jokes land, if you know, basketball, even though you don't really need to be a basketball fan to, to get it. Uh, so I think they enjoyed a lot of that. Like, you know, there's a, after one of the losses, you know, the head coach comes in and talks about how, you know, I, I always picture coach Van Gundy, who I worked with and how, you know, miserable he was after press conferences. And so the coach of the team comes in disheveled and tired and talks about the only thing he, the only thing that allows him to know he still exists is the pain he's feeling from the loss. So the song is pain. Pain is all that, uh, all there is that tells me I'm still here. (laughs) That's the name of the song. Daryl, did you contribute in any way? Did you like go over the script? Did you tweak anything to make it more basketball-y? So they gave me like a fake title. I thought it was completely fake just to make me feel cool throughout the process dramaturg i had never heard that before so they <laughs> so i think i think it's like when we give a really fancy title to an intern you know so they feel like they're more involved so um i i, I want to be careful here i mean this is really uh you know the genius of the the you know mickle and anthony and and uh, merrill uh i think i you know i spoke to them uh, mickle in particular we would have, conf, you know, basically calls every week or two. And he came down and, you know, went to a bunch of our press conferences and things like that. So um, I like to feel like I had some input. I think I did, but uh, I don't, I don't want to, like, I, I really want people to understand how, how it was uh, these other folks who really were the, the driving force behind the creativity of it. You mentioned wanting to take small ball to other cities. Has the process of working on this show made you want to develop other musicals or what um, is next for you in terms of the world of musical theater? You know, and actually already am in process working on a couple other things in, in my late nights. So, <laughs> so yeah, my, I mean, I have a lot of fun with it. So hopefully, hopefully we'll continue to continue to do something like this. 
So the kind of lame version to ask this last question would be, would you rather a Tony Award or an NBA title? But I think the better better version is, would you rather a Tony Award or would you rather have Andrew Tony in his prime on on your team? (laughs) That's a great... uh, I think prime Andrew Tony. Yeah, I'm pretty focused on the NBA title. That's what I've been working for... (laughs) 17 years on in the NBA. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm way, way more focused on that. I also like, you know, I'm a pretty, pretty foundational truth guy. And I like that basketball games have a score at the end and you know, who won and you know, who lost, uh, you know, the subjective world of the art sometimes drives me nuts. Uh, I, I was happy we got good reviews, but I would have been pretty proud of this show either way and what, what was accomplished. So, so I, I, you know, I'm pretty partial to uh, the NBA championship uh, by, by a big margin. So I'll take Andrew Tony. He, he could help us. Yeah. You just better hope that James Harden doesn't see the show and decide that he's going to transition to musical theater. Next <laughs> he's not, he, James, uh, James knows I'm weird already. And, 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 you know, I think uh, we've, We've had a good relationship because he knows, like, all I do is try and figure out how to help him win and take his input. And uh, uh, if and he's he's sort of an out of the box thinker as well, so I think that helps us get along. Yeah, he might go the Michael Jordan route, though. You know, give up basketball for musical theater. Uh, that would really disappoint me. Um, I think uh, James is really going to do a lot in his career. First, uh, hopefully, win multiple titles, but. I mean, he's an. Ex- I found that the superstar players, they're extremely smart, and James being number one on that list, like, and I, and I think it's just, you know, being smart helps in every venue, and you know, it. He knows what work it's going to take. He knows, you know, and I think he famously uh, understands, you know, where are the edges of the game where he can gain an advantage wherever he can. Daryl Morey is the general manager of the Houston Rockets. He's also the dramaturg of the musical (laughs) Small Ball, which you can see at the Catastrophic Theater in Houston and hopefully at a city uh, near you soon. Daryl, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we talk to Bill Barnwell about NFL quarterbacks, I wanted to let you know that we will have a very special bonus segment today. We're going to talk to Mike Schur in our third segment about the Dan Lebetard Show. He's going to stick around for the bonus, uh, and we're going to have a really good conversation. We already had this conversation, so I can I can tease it. It did sound like you were predicting we would have a good conversation, no, Josh. No, it was really good. We taped it already. We could have predicted it anyway, though. Yeah, it was about Bartolo Colon and about the name of the year. It's very funny. Mike Schur is a very funny dude. Um, if you want to hear that conversation— Join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. You can get a free trial. I would recommend signing up to hear this. It's good stuff from the good place guy, Mike Sure, You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
The NFL draft later this month is shaping up as a quarterback bonanza. Draft mavens expect five signal callers to be selected in the first round. That would tie 1999 for the second most field generals taken in round one. Six were chosen in 1983. Let's remember some of those 11 guys because they were, of course, all awesome Cade McNown, Achilles Smith, Tony Eason, Todd Blackledge, Ken O'Brien, Dante Culpepper, Tim Couch. Also, John Elway, Jim Kelly, Dan Marino, and Donovan McNabb. But that's the point. The NFL has been historically poor at evaluating incoming quarterbacks. And today, despite a glut of information, that ability may be even worse than ever. ESPN's Bill Barnwell wrote about this phenomenon earlier this month. Hey, Bill. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so much attention is paid, of course, to the Tim Couches and Achilles Smiths and Ryan Leafs and Johnny Manziels. Every quarterback pick is so prominent. It's become popular wisdom that the NFL generally sucks at projecting quarterbacks. <laughs> How bad is the NFL really at this job? Well, I, I think in the broader sense, they're okay. And I guess we don't know because we don't see every fifth and sixth and seventh round pick get an opportunity to play quarterback. But I do think in general, if they have grades on guys as first round picks, they're going to be better than the guys who are sixth and seventh round picks. I, I do think that's the case. However, when it comes to sorting between those different tiers, when it comes to picking guys within the first round, for example, uh, I, I have no no faith in their ability and they have exhibited no ability to pick, say, the best guy first or the second best guy second. Uh, in, in terms of those tiers, it pretty much is just a random ball. And I went back and looked at the, time, the last, I think, 19, 20 drafts, and I think they chose the best quarterback first among those drafts five times, which is not promising. You should be able to tell the difference between, you know, uh, Andrew Luck and... A, a guy who's not going to be playing in the league for very long. And in that case, Andrew Luck is okay. But Russell Wilson, who was a third round pick, who every team passed on at least once, uh, who the Jaguars famously drafted a punter ahead of and said that uh, they dra they preferred a punter because they'd rather have a starter than a backup. In the case of Russell Wilson was the quote to the AP at the time. Uh, they, you know, I, I, I think you can make the case that Russell Wilson is a better quarterback or a more productive quarterback than Andrew Luck's been over the course of his career. This is the most fascinating question in sports to me in some ways because there's so many incentives as you lay out in your two-part series on this bill to get this question right. Um, you know, you say it's hundreds of millions of dollars uh, it's worth to a franchise to mm -hmm. get the franchise quarterback right. I mean, in the Saints, you know, the team that I root for, you could argue – that if they hadn't signed Drew Brees and free agency, the franchise might not even be in New Orleans anymore. And so mm -hmm. it can be it can be existential to a <laughs> franchise. And so if you combine the just insane incentive to get this right with the fact that there's so much knowledge and so much tape now, it's remarkable to me that teams aren't better at this. And so do you feel like if you were looking at this in a vacuum and you didn't know mm -hmm. how well um, teams did at picking quarterbacks, would you think that they would have improved over time? I, I guess something I wonder is this, and I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but the guy that made me really think about writing this column to begin with was Jared Goff, who was a quarterback who 
was drafted with the first overall pick, had not been someone who throughout his college career had been you know, projected to be the first overall pick. It kind of just happened over the course of the evaluation process. And year one, Jared Goff was the worst quarterback in football. He came into the final second half of the year. He was terrible. Year two, we saw what happened. Get the right coach, bring in a couple of receivers, you improve the offensive line. Jared Goff looked like a Pro Bowl quarterback. So uh, when it comes to that idea of whether teams are bad at this, I really wonder whether it's just that they're bad at picking quarterbacks or they're bad at developing an infrastructure where quarterbacks can succeed. Or are they just bad at this because it appears that they're bad at this because the variables are so great mm-hmm. and it's hard to project how athletes are going to perform. As you point out in your piece, there's a wider range of passing offenses in colleges. You have obstinate coaches in the NFL who have a difficult time finding ways to translate amateur success into the pro sets of the NFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, quarterbacks are getting smarter and their agents are gaming the combine and draft mm-hmm. process. They know what teams are looking for. They become more selective about how much they want to show teams. Um, and the expectations are ridiculous. It is a huge, important pick because you're getting potentially the most important player on your team at a terrific financial value for mm-hmm. the course of his rookie contract. So the expectations are overwhelming. I mean, what GM this year is willing to say, yeah, we're going to take Sam Darnold, but we really don't have a clue about whether he's <sighs> going to be great, good, mediocre, or a total bust in the NFL. And before you respond to any of that, I just want to say that Brian Anger has had a very good career <laughs> as a punter. <laughs> he was he was okay for the Jags. He left and he's been much better, I believe, in Tampa. Yes. Uh, he's been a totally fine punter. No one is no one is criticizing Brian Anger in the kind. Of hope, at least I hope not. I'm not criticizing Brian Anger. Uh, uh, but well, also before you uh, pipe up, Bill, my the the quarterback that has led me to think about these questions is mm-hmm. Kurt Warner, because mm-hmm. there is a plausible scenario in which one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history never even gets to play in the NFL. Like, the fact that he made it was like a crazy story, that he was like a stalker in a grocery store and he was playing in the Arena League and finally he gets a chance. Like, I have a really hard time imagining a scenario in which one of the all-time greatest NBA players just like never even sniffs the NBA or barely Mm -hmm. even gets an opportunity. I'm sure people can like point to God, you know Dennis Rodman or something maybe that maybe that's a counterexample but it feels like more common in football that uh, you know a guy at quarterback who turns out to be really good is thought to be really bad or doesn't even get an opportunity I mean look at Case Keenan last year where very successful college quarterback comes into the league gets gets a bunch of reps it's not just a, a guy like Kurt Warner where he's even not even in the league I mean or, or you know sort of on the outskirts of the league not getting an opportunity he's mediocre in a bunch of places and then suddenly Right context, right offense, uh, stays healthy, good offensive line. He suddenly has a career season in Minnesota. So it's even, you can even have guys who have a thousand NFL pass attempts who look like a totally different quarterback and who have been totally underestimated over the course of their career. And it, it is sort of humbling to think about, you know, somebody like Tom, even Tom Brady, where if, let's say, Drew Bledsoe doesn't get hurt, Tom Brady gets cut the next year, maybe he bounces around the league for a year or two. And he's out of football. And Tom Brady is the most important athlete in the NFL of the last 25 years. It, it's it's sort of scary. And, and it's sort of scary to think that even when you get past the draft, even when you get past the idea of, of you know, we're going to scout these guys in college. We don't know what they're going to be in the pros. Even once you have these guys 
you know, in your building, when you have them at practice, I don't know that teams are necessarily great at sorting between them and picking the right guy. Well, maybe 20% is not a bad success rate. I mean, maybe what we need to rethink is how we evaluate success um, in terms of analyzing and drafting and developing NFL players. I mean, as you point out, analytics really haven't helped that much yet. There's not a tremendous correlation between college performance and future NFL performance. Teams go through all this bullshit about, you know, trying to assess player personalities and they think they have some sort of secret, great psychological understanding of about, about how mm-hmm. these 22 year old guys are going to turn out to be as leaders and players. Um, and teams want to believe that they're they're making informed decisions. And maybe the reality is it's hard to make informed I, decisions. I don't <laughs> buy that at all. Really? I, I feel like 20%, I mean, Bill might be better able than either of us to g- give a percentage of like what the, what the hit rate or success rate is. But that just seems way too low. Like it seems like there's enough information out there and we should have learned enough by this point to do way better than they're doing. I mean, maybe the fact that they're not doing better is like more is evidence on your side rather than mine. But I just feel like I feel comfortable sitting here and saying they're doing a bad job and it feels like they should be doing better. Well, Kevin Clark wrote a piece for The Ringer, Bill, that I'm sure you read that Mm -hmm. basically posits that they, we still don't know what to do with this information. These are all amazing athletes and we're all great quarterbacks uh, in college at different levels of play and different statistical accomplishments, but they were all really good. Mm-hmm. Now, having said all that, if you believe that the rate is 20%, I think it's my guess. If I had to pick a number, uh, we don't have a ton of data because there's only so many first round quarterbacks we can work with. But in terms of first round picks, I think it's about 40% who end up working out into something pretty useful where I think the team doesn't regret the guy they chose, but let's say 40%. That's not a good number. That's not a good percentage. You're yes, not definitely. pleased given how much money you're investing. So, right. I'm not but, saying that it's a good percentage. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that maybe that's the best that NFL right. organizations are able to do. Right. Maybe within the bounds of variance and, and statistical, um, statistical windows, that's about as good as you're going to get. Right. But now let's say that's the case. And you're an organization that wants to be smart. And you say, well... We're not good at picking quarterbacks. No one's good at picking quarterbacks. So what we're going to do is not take that quarterback in the top five. We're going to trade down. We're going to grab a bunch of picks. We're going to take a shot at a bunch of quarterbacks and hope that we stumble on the right guy. That makes sense. You've also just described the last two years of the Cleveland Browns, and you've just been fired from your job if you're Sashi Brown. So I, that's logical, but I think there's also that element of uh, I don't know that you can necessarily run a team that way because you're just not going to get the, the the time frame you need to succeed. And I think at some point, even a smart team like the Eagles, who have Howie Roseman, they are an organization steeped in analytics. They're very comfortable using numbers. They're very smart. A lot of decisions they make are, are based in a very sound reasoning. Not always perfect, but at least there's a logic behind a lot of the things they do that's pretty clear. They had to trade up and take a shot at Carson Wentz because you may only have one shot to get a guy before you get replaced as general manager and head coach. So uh, I, I don't know that it's going to get better in part just because we fire coaches quicker than we did before, or, or we, 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 we change quicker than we did before, maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let's um, talk specifically about the guys at the top of this year's draft, which it's really a great like buffet because you have all different yes. types of first round quarterback. You have, Sam Darnold, who I would describe as the guy 
like the has all the tools guy. Like you look at yeah. him and he's like, he can make all the throws. He's agile in the pocket, great athlete. Um, maybe not, you know, some, some issues with interceptions, but he's got all the tools. Then mm-hmm. you've got Josh Rosen. Maybe he's got an attitude problem. <laughs> what, what do we think of his attitude? He thinks too much. Thinks too much. <laughs> then you've got Lamar Jackson who had the unbelievable numbers, but let's switch him to wide receiver. Um, Baker, so he has a skin color problem, <laughs> he, according to some NFL front He offices. seems to. Then you've got Baker Mayfield, who has unbelievable stats, but maybe maybe he's a little too short. And then you've got Josh Allen. Also attitude, Baker Mayfield. Cocky. Cocky. He's arrogant. He's cocky. And then you have uh, Josh Allen, the small school guy with the amazing arm, but like the really bad completion percentage. And maybe he'll be a bust or maybe he'll like turn out Carson to be Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz. So all that stuff that I just said, um, Bill, you'll have anonymous scouts or you'll off, you'll have people put their, their name to it who just have such confident pronouncements about, um, you know, what these guys are going to turn out to be mm-hmm. this, despite all of the decades of data you've described where people have no idea what they're talking about. When are we going to get the anonymous scouts being like, here's my anonymously, I have no fucking idea <laughs> what is going to happen. And anybody who says they do uh, is, is a liar. Well, I'll tell you, if I ever go work in the NFL and I have no plans to do so, but who knows, maybe one day I will. And you see a quote from an anonymous scout or an anonymous executive saying exactly that. I promise you that's me because I'm the only person <laughs> who will be thinking that way. I mean, if you're, a general manager, and let's not a little higher up than a scout. Let's say a general manager. And I brought this up before. You start as a scout making twenty grand a year, or as, as a, a coffee guy in the office making twenty grand a year. You become a position scout. You're a local scout. You move around. You have a job where you're making nothing for a long time, and eventually, it, out of hundreds of scouts, hundreds of guys in the same tier, you rise through the ranks and eventually become a general manager. Do you have an irrational confidence at some point? You, you think, okay, well. What I succeeded where dozens or hundreds of people like me did not. So I think you naturally have a sort of unwarranted faith in your opinion and your ability to, you know, project guys to succeed, even if necessarily you don't. You just happen to be the guy who sort of benefited from the wired up effect. Someone had to break through, and so you did. Um, I I think that's the right attitude to have. Is that I don't know any better, but I don't think anyone's going to go into a job interview as a general manager. And say, well, you know, I, I don't really know who's any good. I just think we're going to guess. And um, I don't think anyone else is any good. So we're going to try and trade for extra picks. And we're going to take the guy who falls and just try him with the right talent and hope that he works out. Because owners don't want to hear that. Owners want to hear, uh, I, I can look into a guy's eyes in three seconds and know if he's going to be an NFL quarterback. And that's the kind of scout. And that's the kind of quote. And that's the kind of guy who gets promoted in the NFL. So rationally, Bill, analytically, if there were some statistic, and you cited a bunch of things that you mm-hmm. numbers that you looked at in your pieces, what data that front offices have access to mm-hmm. do you think best reflects who might succeed? Well, I, it seems like accuracy is the thing that translates well. If you don't have it in college, there are exceptions, I would say. There have been guys who have changed scheme and maybe been a little better. Matthew Stafford, perhaps, is an example where – he was not a very accurate passer in college and had a huge arm, but uh, plays in a scheme where he throws a lot of short passes in Detroit. and His numbers look a lot better. But usually it's the guys who don't have accuracy who seem to fail in the NFL. And usually it's guys who don't have accuracy who have strong arms. And 
Well, I think the obvious candidate there is Josh Allen. And maybe that's not fair. I mean, there are arguments that Josh Allen is an underrated quarterback in some ways, didn't have a ton of talent around him. And I think that's a fair argument to make. I don't know that anyone else makes it for any other quarterback. I don't think if there's a quarterback who was super accurate, who had a very weak arm, that I would hear the same scouts making the same arguments about him not having talent around him. But uh, I do think that archetype tends to fail more than any other one. Now, I don't think that means Josh Allen is necessarily going to fail, but I do think he's a higher risk option perhaps than some of the other quarterbacks in this year's draft. I would, my, my last thought here is that I feel like as observers of, of the sport and people who don't watch film, I haven't seen Josh Allen play. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like we still end up rooting for guys who will like confirm our beliefs. Like mm-hmm. I want Lamar Jackson to su- succeed at quarterback because I think it's like it's racist that he doesn't get an opportunity. I also would like Josh Rosen to succeed at quarterback because I feel like people are saying maybe he's too smart for his own good or have an attitude problem. I would like those mm-hmm. people to look stupid and I would like Josh Rosen to, you know, prove that you can be a reasonably thoughtful human being and be a good NFL quarterback. So I feel like I just want to own up to the fact that I have biases and that I I'm, I'm rooting for these guys. And I would like kind of, I mean, I have nothing against Josh Allen, but just the notion that the guy with like the big arm with the low completion percentage is going to be the number one pick seems mm-hmm. like silly to me. But I have like no idea. Like he could be the, the greatest quarterback ever and Lamar Jackson could be a total bust. So mm-hmm. I just want to put it out there that I know, I know absolutely nothing. Don't trust Can what I, I say. <laughs> Can I also put that out there? I... I cover this this sport for a living, and I I would not pretend for a second that I know which one of these guys is going to succeed. I, of course, I have, like you said, my, my biases as well. I, w- I want Baker Mayfield to succeed because I think he plays in an exciting scheme. I think he's a super accurate quarterback. When I look at the numbers, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. And I like that. That seems easy and logical to me. It makes sense in my brain that the guy who is better at football in college would be better at football in the pros than guys who were not as good in college. That seems like it's totally reasonable. And that would make life so much simpler for me to just be able to say, okay, well, this guy was good then. He's going to be good now. But I don't know that the evidence supports that's likely uh, to be the case. Bill Barnwell is a staff writer for ESPN. Go read his story. History tells us the NFL is terrible at evaluating quarterbacks. Here's what it means for 2018. Thanks a lot, Bill. Thanks, guys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For our last topic of the day, we're going to welcome in Mike Schur, the creator of Parks and Rec and The Good Place and many other fine television products. He wrote a piece that we published on Slate last week. It was headlined, Do You Get the Show? ESPN's Dan Levitard built a sports talk empire by talking about sports as little as possible. Mike Schur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here. Um, I want to give the listeners a little bit of insight into the Slate editorial process. Um, I sent 
an email last week to our staff um, explaining this was our cover story. I was, you know, so happy to have it. Here's what the gist of the story is. And my colleague Dan Coyce responded in saying, uh, this piece is really delightful and I can't recommend it enough. Josh, how did you get Mike to do it? And I wrote back, he asked me if he could write it and I said, okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, that, that checks out, yeah. And then Dan wrote back, this email is yet another example, if we even needed one, of Josh Levine's prodigious storytelling talents. Um, <laughs> so enough about me. Um, let's give the people a little bit of a richer backstory here. Um, it is true that you asked me if you could write the story, and I said, okay. But what got you interested in Dan Levitard as a subject, and what got you interested um, in his show? I knew Levitard, I've known him for a long time, not personally, but I've loved his work. And I thought that, uh, and this is sort of unique to media personalities, I had this feeling about him that every time I saw him talk about something, it was interesting. You know, he sort of made his name years ago, years and years and years ago, um, because he was a comms for the Miami Herald who occasionally did stuff on ESPN, and he came out and said that he believed that Steve Nash had beaten Shaq for the NBA MVP in part because of racism. And I just remember seeing him say that and thinking, boy, that is, a, that is not the kind of take. That's not the kind of opinion you hear people like willing to express openly, uh, outwardly on television. And I sort of followed his career. You know, that was whatever, 2003 or something. And I just sort of followed him. He would pop up on PTI from time to time. He would do stuff here and there. I always found him interesting and worth listening to. But I, uh, about a year and a half ago, I started listening to his show. And it was one of those things where I just, it, it very quickly became a sort of daily routine for me. It became a, I, I started, it's one of those things where I started to feel like if I didn't listen to it on a certain day that I had missed something. And I just clicked for some reason with the absurdities of it, with the inside jokes, the routines they had, the sort of whole vibe of it. I just became really enamored of it. And so after like a year and a half of listening to this thing every day, I emailed you and said, I need to write about this or I'm going to, I can't got to get it out of my head. <laughs> I have to figure out I have, to, I have to write about this so I can figure out how it's done and how they're doing it. And, uh, and it, it, the process of going down there to Miami and talking to them, the people who make the show, the people who work on it, it sort of confirmed for me exactly what I had suspected, which is it's just this group of, it's just this little unit of people who all deeply understand what they're doing and they're all on the same page and no one is telling them they can't do it. It's really kind of a vote ultimately it's a vote for creative freedom. I want to ask you to describe for people that don't listen to Levitard what the show is about and what it is like. Because to me, what it feels like is Dan Levitard is a very smart guy who, when he was a columnist for The Herald, wrote interesting columns. He wrote about social issues. He, he didn't just write about athletes. He was you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, young, smart, hip willing to go beyond the boundaries that a lot of newspaper columnists establish for themselves. And what his radio show feels like is this, it hits this sweet spot between, you know, morning zoo and irreverent, smart conversations about topics you wouldn't normally think about as being completely sports. Yeah, I think that's right. He, he is uniquely uninterested in sports talk radio qua sports talk radio. He does not ever want to say, you know, can Villanova repeat as national champions or, 
you know, what can we glean from the Astros hot start or anything like that? Like the kind of topics you expect to hear the, the kind of process of sports radio that he really um, despises and all of the people who work with him despise is the, is the hot take world, right? It's the, it's the, uh, I'll tell you what, the Dodgers are five and nine and uh, you heard it here first. They're not going to make the playoffs. Now you call in and scream at me and we'll scream at each other for 20 minutes and then we'll go to commercial. Like he is either interested in goofing around with his friends at, at a level at which it's, if it's almost hard to overstate how little he cares about whether people, people like tune out because of his goofing around, like he, they don't, they just do what they want to do. Uh, and they have this in, in complete sort of like, um, they oh, they're almost talking code. The inside jokes are so thick. Uh, on that show, he either wants to be doing that or he wants to be saying, let's push the boundaries of what we're allowed to talk about. Among the many tensions on the show, which I find delightful, one of them is he's always talking about what, how far do you think we can push this envelope before we get fired? And all the younger people who work with him are always like, no, maybe don't do that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we like our jobs. Don't, don't get us all canned. Uh, and it's, it's, so it's, it's really two extremes. It's either extremely kind of in-depth political social examination or it's utter frivolity where if you haven't listened to the show for a year, you probably have no idea what's even going on. Well, what you just described is part of the secret handshake aspect of the show, right? It's not just the thickness of the inside jokes. It's also the feeling that you're getting away with something in a sense by listening that you're like being implicated in a good way that like you're part of this club that you're all getting away with something. It's not just the people on the show. It's the audience, too. It's like, I can't believe this thing exists for me to listen to. That's right. And there are and for people who have that sort of approach to it and take that sort of pleasure from it, there are daily things that you can enjoy that you hope for. You you sense them coming and you start to enjoy them. And then when they happen, it feels like your victory. Like they so Greg Cody of the Miami Herald is a sort of old timey uh, reporter. I didn't talk to him for the piece, but he's a sort of old-timey Herald columnist who's, been, who's a longtime friend of Lebetard's, and he comes on the show every Tuesday. And they have this thing with him where at the end of every hour, they have a hard network out where the, it just they have to cut really hard to a commercial. There's no, like, they wrap up a segment, and then they do a little live ad and blah, 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 blah. It's just a hard cut. And this game started months and months and months ago, maybe years ago, where they try to get Cody talking so that they can cut him off in the middle of a sentence with a hard network app. <laughs> and they do it, to, and he never learns. Like he, part of the fun is that he never is aware enough of, of what's going on to know that it's coming. And when, it, when he's on, everyone who's a fan of the show is like, all right, let's see. And they, they'll release statistics like on, the, on their Twitter feed. They'll release statistics of like, this year there have been, you know, whatever it is, 72 hard network outs. We've gotten them on 48 of them. That's, a, that's this percentage, you know, like, and so it's like, they, it is like a daily kind of absurdist game that you play along with. And I have to say that when they get them on the network out, it's always funny. Um, I think we've gone long enough in this segment without uh, hearing a, an excerpt of the Dan mm-hmm. Levitard show as, as an extremely unprofessional operation. I feel like maybe a professional <laughs> operation would have played a clip by now, but let's play a little bit of an excerpt from the show back in March when Mike went to visit the studio. Everything stops right now with the story Stugatz has on his computer. It is a magically 2018 basketball story. 
It's just one sentence of reporting, and I do believe that we can carry it for at least a week of shows. <laughs> Listen to this one second of journalistic excellence by, is it Windhorse? Yeah, sources tell Brian Windhorse that J.R. Smith was suspended Thursday for throwing a bowl of soup at assistant coach Damon Jones. Read that again, please. Sources tell Brian Windhorse that J.R. Smith was suspended Thursday for throwing a bowl of soup at assistant coach Damon Jones. Mike, can you call Windhorse, please? Because I need to know what kind of soup it was. I've got so many follow-up questions. I want this to be the scandal of our lifetime. What's delightful about that is that it is a piece of absurdist theater, right? Find the most ridiculous detail in a story that the rest of the sports world is treating super seriously. Conflict on a team. Somebody threw something at someone else, and you just take it and run with it. And you talked earlier, Mike, about this idea, and Josh, you too, about this this notion that why this succeeds is because the audience feels like they're part of the of, of the act, that they get the joke. Um, and that's any great TV show or radio show, isn't it, Mike? I mean, the, the people who you've entertained with your television shows feel like they understand the characters, that they're in on the joke. And that's what happens with Levitard. Yes, it is like any TV show or, or any good kind of piece of entertainment. I will say that the, the thing that makes this unique in my mind is that this is the first, they're, they're sort of the first people to do it like this. And, you know, in, in 1975, my first job was at SNL. In 1975, when SNL burst onto the scene, they started doing commercial parodies. And people lost their minds because they had been watching commercials, straightforward has this ever happened to you kind of <laughs> commercials for decades? And then someone came along and was like, what if we make fun of that? And then, like, you know, for 43 years, SNL stock and trade has been commercial parodies. They're still doing them 43 years later. And, you know, when I talked to Eric Rideholm, who is a, who's an executive producer of a lot of different pieces of content in ESPN, including Pardon the Interruption, Around the Horn, and Highly Questionable, which is Levitard's TV show, he really summarized this well, I thought. He said that when he started PTI, there was, no one, there was no show that just talked about the basic daily sports issues of the day, that just did a rundown. Here's what happened today, here's what we think about it. And so, they, so we started that, and they did it for, for 10 years. For 10 years, suddenly we had a bunch of shows where people just sort of talked about what happened in sports that day. Not in a sports center way, not in a highlight clip show kind of a way, but it just in a here are two people discussing these issues. So they did that for a decade. And then Lebertard at the same time, was doing this absurd local radio show where he goofed around and made fun of that kind of stuff. And so after 10 years, he suddenly burst into national prominence with both the radio show and Highly Questionable, in part because he was doing the opposite. People were, had 10 years to get used to two guys talking about sports topics very seriously and straightforwardly, and then suddenly Lebertard can come along and make fun of it. And instead of saying, all right, um, J.R. Smith threw a, a bowl of soup at Damon Jones, how does that affect the Cavs' playoff chances? Is he going to get suspended? How will LeBron react? Does LeBron is this make LeBron more or less likely to leave Cleveland? Lebetard says, "What was Damon Jones wearing? I hope it was a white suit." <laughs> and what kind of soup was it? And, and what, what kind of soup most would be best to throw at somebody? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if after going to hang out with them in Miami, if what you saw has changed your view of, of how you would approach putting together, whether it's like a writer's room or any kind of like 
um, you know, creative environment at your shows. Like, I would imagine that if somebody went to like see people like working on the good place, like people would be having a good time and enjoying each other's company. So I'm just wondering, like, what was different, or was there anything that like you're like, wow, like I, I can't believe they do things this way. Um, as a writer and a producer, I found the most interesting aspect of it. And I don't think this would necessarily translate in a, in a piece for the public, but the most interesting aspect of it to me was the production of the show. Now I would imagine that every successful radio show has a very highly skilled production team. And I don't think that this production team is unique in the world, but I would say that they're, that they are incredibly good at what they do. They're also, there is extreme value, obviously, in the amount of time that they've been doing this. Mike Ryan, who's the executive producer, has worked there since he was 19 in some form or another. Um, Roy Bellamy's worked there for 12 years, I think. You know, uh, Chris Cody, who's Greg Cody's son, works at the show and is like, he's the newbie, and I think he's been there for five years. Um, and Billy Gill, who has been there for nine or ten. So, like, this is a, this is a group of people. They're all youngish, and they're all, they've all been doing this together for a really long time. And in that clip you heard, when uh, after Stu Gotts reads the quote the second time, this was unexpected. This story broke while they were on the air. And after Stu Gotts read the clip the second time that uh, J.R. Smith had thrown a bowl of soup at Damon Jones, before Lebetard says can we get Windhorst on the phone? Mike Ryan has signaled to Allison Turner, who's the show booker, and said, get Windhorst on the phone. He just knew that this was what the show was about now. This was what was going to happen today. And, that, and they were already in the production room. They were already anticipating how Levitard was going to approach this. And it also is an affirmation that you cannot build these kinds of shows in a laboratory. I mean, ESPN is on, what, the ninth iteration of cold pizza now? I mean... <laughs> There's a, you know, focus grouping television shows or radio shows by these giant networks, which is what giant networks, as you well know, often aim to do, is not a guarantor of success. Yes, you're right. And there's also, you know, there's, what's the old phrase? It's like moss grows best in the dark or whatever. Like if you try to, if you, if you, tr if you try to force something, if you spend a ton of money and you get all these high-profile people, and you say, like, this, is, this guy's Q rating is this, and this woman's Q rating is this, and we're going to follow this particular formula, blah, blah, blah. Your chances for success are the same as a, it's a coin flip, right? But sometimes you have these situations where I really believe that the actual physical distance from ESPN is a big factor in how, how this show evolved, how it developed, and why it's successful. It's because there was no one looking over their shoulders. The stakes were low at the beginning, no one really expected them to succeed. They were just doing a local show, and they just had time to kind of work it out and kind of get their own rhythms down and figure out what the vibe was. You know, I go into this a little bit in the piece, but at the beginning, when they were first starting, Stu Gotts was actually the sort of main host of the show, and Levitard was the, like, sidekick, and that didn't work. Um, they, they're, they're friends with this guy, with Boog Shambi, John Shambi, who was also a local Miami guy, and he, he was sort of their guru, and he said, why don't you try flipping it, try Levitard driving a car, try Stu Gotts in the passenger seat, they, and they were just allowed to fail. Last question for me is, um, you know, what we've described and what you described in the piece, you would think it would be a recipe for having a small kind of cult audience, but the fascinating thing is that the ratings for the show, like in this world, in the world of sports radio are like super high. It's not like 
there's just like a tiny number of people like weirdos like you who are like devotees of what Levitard is doing. And so again, I'm like curious if you can analogize to your world, like how do you balance catering to the super fans and the people that listen every day with, you know, people who might be more kind of passively interested or you want to like keep them, uh, you know, from, from switching the channel if they happen to tune in because, um, you know that you've you've got to have both in order to have a successful program, right? And and if I can jump in there, Mike, networks are notorious for forcing shows to tinker with their formula because they think it'll goose the audience, whether it's NPR or NBC or ESPN, and that's a, that's a risk for a show. So how does Lebetard avoid some of that and at the same time manage to do what Josh was just talking about, have big and increasing numbers? Yeah, they've talked about this, um, uh, both to me and on the air. They don't particularly like it. Um, they, if you've listened to the show in the last three or four months when there's been a real explosion, they, they, they busted into San Diego, they took over for Jim Rome, uh, they bumped Jim Rome off the station in San Diego, they, they got into Chicago, I think, or some other big market recently. As the show has expanded, they talk a lot on the air about how the show is expanding, and they also explain a bunch of their jokes. They say if you don't, they'll say things like if you if you if you're new to this show, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it. We have this thing. They'll explain the hard network out thing with Greg Cody, or they'll explain the um, the you know whatever some some dumb bit they do. And Lebertard talked to me, and he also sometimes talks in the air about how it's annoying. <laughs> he doesn't want to be explaining the jokes that they've been doing on this show for a decade or longer, but. He also recognizes he's in this very odd space right now where his little tiny bespoke radio show from Miami, which is all he ever really wanted to do, has now exploded nationally. And he kind of has he's walking this line between wanting to do the exact same show and also understanding that he has a little bit of a responsibility to at least give people the chance to get in on on it. You know, like I think he feels like if he doesn't explain five percent of what the show is doing, uh, that that people will just be like, what the hell is this, and just tune out. So it's they don't like it, um, but they do do it a little bit. Um, I think out of a, just a sense of sort of, you know, they recognize how how incredible this is. I, I think that they're figuring it like most things. They are figuring out in real time, live on the air, how it is they're supposed to handle any of this because it really is as much a surprise to them as it is to anybody else. Mike Schur is the creator of Parks and Rec and The Good Place, and he's a fan of De- Dan Levitard. You can read his piece on the Dan Levitard show with Stugatz on Slate. We'll put it in our uh, show page. Mike, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for letting me write the piece and for having me on the podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for Afterballs, and Dan Lebetard has a phrase that he uses to describe his show that I find to be extremely charming and evocative, and that is the marching band to nowhere. Um, 
the example that Mike uses in his piece is that they wanted to do this big ceremony to celebrate the University of Central Florida because they were undefeated, being the real national champions of college football, and they created this elaborate like trophy and this plan for it, and then they just never did it. And so when he went to see the show, the trophy is just like sitting On the off floor, somewhere, yeah. not being used for any purpose, and thus the marching band to nowhere. A lot of march, no particular direction, but uh, it's it's a fun uh, it's a fun band. Stefan, what is your marching band to nowhere? Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels is scheduled to pitch at home on Tuesday night against the Boston Red Sox and then maybe DH against them on Thursday. Someone, no doubt, will and should know that the last person to pitch and bat regularly at a super high level was also a Red Sox. They've already pointed it out. Babe Ruth, which got me wondering, Josh, if Otani's comparable is the Babe, did Babe have a comparable? And how did the media cover Ruth's two-way talents? To answer the first question, Ruth didn't really have a comparable. He was sui generis. His first three full seasons with Boston, Ruth was a full-time pitcher who also pinch hit occasionally. Babe Ruth convinces Slim Ray Caldwell that he is not the only home run pitcher in the game. The Boston Daily Globe wrote in 1915, that was Ruth's rookie season, Slim Ray Caldwell, best known, Josh, for drinking and getting hit by a bolt of lightning on the mound in 1919 and rising to record the final out of the game. A little aside there. Those players back then were more dedicated they were than, tough. The, than the layabouts of our day. Tough. In 1917, Grantland Rice noted that Caldwell was the Yankees' main pinch hitter and that Walter Johnson did the same thing for the Nationals. But the premier bird of them is Babe Ruth of the Red Sox. Ruth is probably the best hitting pitcher that baseball has ever known. He is not only a consistent batsman, but he is as likely to crack one over the fence or up into the stands as any man in baseball. Even on a bad day, Ruth was a spectacle. Chalk another for Babe Ruth, the Globe headlined, loose as ashes on the mound, but some hitter, yes. Washington rattles in and out, just like Shuttlecock. That was the headline. I don't know. I don't know exactly what happened in that game, but something happened. While Ruth was racking up wins, there was no first-take debate about whether he should also be a full-time hitter. But then the Red Sox brass realized that fans showed up when Ruth played. In the 120-game war-shortened 1918 season, Ruth started 19 games on the mound and 70 more at first base or in the outfield. Before that, it was exclusively pinch hitting. Interesting nugget here. Otani related. The Globe reported that the Husky Baltimorean didn't play the field on the day before he was scheduled to start. That's when writers noticed the Ruthian dilemma. Ed Barrow's chief problem is where to play Babe Ruth, who wants to cavort in left field while manager would have him pitch. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch wrote in the spring of 1919, Barrow was the Red Sox manager. He was no modern thinker. The St. Louis paper wrote that Barrow has reached the conclusion that Ruth must be a left-handed pitcher most of the time and that playing him in left field in between times as a steady diet is all wrong. 
Ruth put an end to this conversation. He basically threw Barrow under the bus and said he wanted to play every day. Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker play every day, don't they? He told the Hartford Current. And he clearly got his way. Ruth didn't pitch until May of 1919, and he wound up starting just 15 games for the Red Sox on the mound compared to 121 in the field, and he hit a record 29 home runs that season. So what happened? Some clues emerged after Red Sox owner Harry Frazee sold Ruth to the Yankees in January of 1920. Frazee trashed Ruth on his way out of town, calling him selfish and insubordinate. In its story about the deal, the New York Tribune reported that there is no better pitcher anywhere than Babe Ruth. But the previous season, Ruth, quote, wanted to be in the lineup every day and used every known subterfuge to gain his end, working the sore arm gag until the middle of summer. Basically, Babe Ruth kept lying and saying he was hurt when he wasn't. Ed Barrow, a couple of weeks later, admitted that Ruth pitched only under protest and that he did not put out his heart in his box work. Box was the mound. And then the Yankees announced that Ruth was done as a pitcher. Manager Miller Huggins' thought process was articulated in a story in the Los Angeles Times. Huggins, knowing baseball as few of the modern school do, has become convinced through long years of observation that no athlete can divide his time between the box and the outfield and do justice to either position. Of course, a pitcher may shuttle back and forth between the box and the outer garden for a limited period and get away with it, but eventually he will lose his stuff as a pitcher. Sounds to me like a warning from the grave from Miller Huggins to Shohei Otani, Josh. Only time will tell. Josh, what's your marching band to nowhere? So last week, uh, my friend Dan Ingber shared uh, an article from Popular Science in 1917 uh, on Twitter, sticking to the same era. Era, got to stick to the Babe Ruth era. Um, The headline was Ice Tennis, the New Indoor Winter Sport. Uh, this one page story included, uh, such claims as it takes, uh, both skill and skating and skill in tennis to make this new game interesting. The players serve drive and volley with much of the same energy and dash, which they display on ground or cement courts skates, hindering them only now and then when occasional falls occur, the court on which the men play gotta be men is marked out with painted black lines. The regulation tennis ball is used. At first, a squash tennis ball was tried, but it proved to be too fast, even though its corded surface took a better grip on the ice than the lawn tennis ball covering. So I looked a little bit more into this. What is the deal with ice tennis? And I discovered that basically every few years, the uh, media of the late 19th century and early 20th century would discover the exciting new game of ice tennis. The first example I found was from 1895 from a publication called Harper's Young People. Um, And Harper's Young People said, if you try this ice tennis, you will find a great deal of amusement to be gotten out of it. And that so far as exercise is concerned, there's almost nothing in ice work that brings into play so many muscles. And besides this, it has the added recommendation of being a game which gives your mind as well as your body exercise. 1902. A newspaper noted that society in Canada is about to take up a new winter game. It is known as ice tennis. The Canadians have found that the chief trouble likely to stand in the way of ice tennis is the difficulty of getting a sufficient number of young men who are both good skaters and tennis players. 
Seems like an issue. Um, the big champion in the press of ice tennis was the New York Times. This was on Christmas Eve, 1916. Skating has all aspects of boom. Indoor ice rinks have been added and outdoor ponds only await cold weather. Ice tennis is in favor, exclamation point. I want to point out that the Christmas Eve paper notoriously thin. (laughs) Ice tennis is in favor. Tennis on skates recently got a trial at the Ice Palace. It required too much skating and not enough tennis to hold a singles competition. But doubles, played with well-worn tennis balls, is guaranteed to furnish fine sport and exercise for all that indulge in it. Ice tennis is here to stay. It's going to find a permanent place among the winter sports. All right, let's go a few decades later. We got a 1938 newsreel from our friends at Pathé. This ice is really meant for skating. An ex-world champion, Cecilia College, is practicing for the British Amateur Figure Skating Championships at Wembley. And the other stars are here too, including five-year-old Nicolae Grinstein from Latvia. But figure skating is tiring, so they decide to play the game. And we believe this is the first time tennis has been played on the ice. Two comments here, Stefan. First of all, supports my thesis that ice tennis gets discovered every few years. First time anyone's ever played ice tennis. Also, I just love the specificity. We've got to name the five-year-old Latvian because the newsreel audience needs to know. Um, So the reason – here's just a personal theory I've developed in the 30 minutes that I've been researching ice tennis – The reason that it keeps getting rediscovered every few years is that people stop playing it because it's terrible. And then somebody's like, oh, playing tennis on ice, that seems like a good idea. Let's uh, let's give that a try. But I want to give credit to Brooklyn Life, that publication, January 20th on 1912. No byline, but the unnamed writer says this about ice tennis on skates. The fact that four girls, socially prominent, as they invariably are when they do anything like this, play tennis on the ice, wearing skates, was hailed by the press last week as a startling innovation. Nothing to it. It is all foolishness. Ice is a poor surface to play from at best, for as may be imagined, the ball shoots and has very little rise when traveling at any speed. But if one is to play the game on ice, why wear skates when steel spikes or creepers or even rubber overshoes would be preferable. A first-rate skater but poor tennis player has all the advantage over a first-rate player but poor skater in playing on skates, but one is required to jump about with steel blades on one's feet, not to skate, and as may be imagined, this jumping about does not tend to improve the playing surface, which rapidly comes to resemble a frappéed crème de menthe. It's green? Look, not everything about the Brooklyn Life writer is perfect, but they're right on about tennis on ice. And when I was looking uh, looking up just like references to it, there are like recent videos for uh, you know various outlets that are like, look, for the first time we're playing tennis on ice. Isn't this fun? No, it is not fun. Do not play tennis on ice. Do not create a video for your website or publication saying you've discovered the exciting new game of tennis on ice. You haven't discovered it. And there's a reason that it doesn't exist. I have a couple questions. Isn't the main problem with tennis on ice, not that it's tennis and not that it's ice, it's the ball. You got to come up with a better ball. If the problem is that the ball skitters hither and yon. Yeah, you're rediscovering what Brooklyn Life found out in 1912, Stefan. No, but now we have my point. Is <laughs> we have the now technology. Now we have the technology. Right. Well, look, just more information doesn't make us better at drafting NFL quarterbacks. It might just be an intractable problem. It could, but I think someone owes it to all of us 
Did you have another question? To find out. My other question is that I've noticed that you and I, when we do these deep dives into newspapers.com and yeah. ProQuest, we have a voice that we use <laughs> when we read the quotations from yeah. newspapers from earlier parts of the century. And I'm curious what the cutoff is when we stop using <laughs> our newsreel voice to read those quotations and when we sort of talk more normally. I would you say World we, War II. Yeah, I think World War II also. I think after the war, though, post-war, maybe 1950, Korea. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>